0: Father, we know that you're always with us, but help us to open our eyes and see you. Help us to come close to you just now. Help us to learn something new about you. May that knowledge be more than just facts, but um, may our understanding of you be something that is real, something we really can put our hands on and experience with you. Amen. In uh, these three books, John addresses a very specific heresy that was going on in the early Christian church. And uh, Paul kind of tackled this problem as well, as we'll discuss, but uh, this comes up twice. Here in uh, 1 John 4, he would say, "'Dear friends, don't believe all people "'who say that they have the Spirit. "'Instead, test them. "'See whether the Spirit they have is from God, "'because there are many false prophets in the world.'" And he's gonna go on and kind of describe what the false prophets are saying. This is how you can recognize God's spirit. Every person who declares that Jesus Christ has come as a human has the spirit that is from God. And this uh, kind of struck me as odd here. It has for a long time because of course there was no Jesus Christ by name until he was born as baby. That was God who was born. So, um, the, the words here, anyone who uh, acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come as a human, kind of interesting. Why is it described this way? But every person who doesn't declare that Jesus Christ has come as a human has the spirit that isn't from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist that you have heard is coming. That spirit is already in the world, Antichrist, all the way back in this time. And he repeats this again in 2 John, the second letter. Many people who deceive others have gone into the world. They refuse to declare that Jesus Christ came in flesh and blood. This is the mark of a deceiver and an antichrist. Okay, two times. And Paul, here in uh, Colossians, would address the same issue. Be careful not to let anyone rob you of this faith through a shallow and misleading philosophy. Such a person follows human traditions and the world's way of doing things rather than following Christ. And then he would emphasize this point, all of God lives in Christ's body. Isn't that incredible? All of God lives in Christ's body. And he would contrast this with the false view of the Antichrist, uh, the the false view that uh, was being presented. So as many of you know, this is addressing something very specific here known as Gnosticism. And uh, Gnosticism, the, the word here in Greek, gnosis, means knowledge. And you read about what Gnosticism is all about, and it's interesting just to see that there are many well-known people all the way down to our current age who still promote Gnosticism. And here's a description. And what's wrong with this? It's a movement that arose in the 2nd century BC that, quotes, placed the emphasis of life and salvation upon obtaining knowledge, which was deemed truth and removing ignorance and error. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with obtaining knowledge, truth, ultimate truth, and removing ignorance and error? That sounds like, uh, well, I'd agree with that. Uh, what's the deal with Gnosticism? And uh, Gnosticism infiltrated many different religions. Uh, we're just gonna deal with uh, the aspect within Christianity, but also a Zoroastrian influence, Jewish, Buddhism. Uh, it's rather diffuse. So let's try to uh, explain this a little more specifically with regards to Christian Gnosticism. So this was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, problem that the early church had to deal with. That's why John keeps bringing it up. That's why Paul referred to it. And uh, basically the problem here is it was an attempt to incorporate Greek philosophy into Christianity and some specific ideas of Greek philosophy Again, another quote. Gnostics desired to separate Jesus Christ from Judaism and to incorporate him him into the pantheism of the Greeks. Okay, and we need to think about what what were some of these Greek philosophers saying that would have an influence in Christianity. One of them, for example, is uh, many of the Greek philosophers were not especially, especially favorable toward women. And it's thought that this influence comes out quite heavily in the Gnostic Gospels. For example, the Gospel of Thomas. And does this sound like Jesus to you? Peter is quoted here in this gospel as saying, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Okay, now Peter said some uh, pretty outrageous things, so surely Jesus is going to come along and uh, correct this. And Jesus, in the gospel of Thomas, said to Peter, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Now, does that really come out in the Gospels that we have? I mean, look at how Jesus treated the woman caught in adultery. And uh, as I mentioned, one of the things when we uh, look at the Gospels to see, well, are they credible? Do we really believe the Gospels? Uh, One of the strongest points of credibility is how ridiculous the disciples appear in the Gospels. I mean, in uh, legendary accounts, uh, the disciples are always great heroes. They never look like fools. Uh, but in the Gospels, they're always looking incredibly foolish. I mean, if you were going to write down the Gospels, you would not include the fact that uh, you were scared to death the night that Jesus was resurrected, hiding in a room, and the women are down there bravely at the tomb. Okay, you just would you'd leave that that part out. All right. So um, anyway, this. Uh, This is not the main point of what I want to make here, but just to to emphasize here a little bit of the Greek influence uh, here in these uh, books. Here's the much more important point, and this is what John is addressing. Um, The idea of Plato, of course, dualism is associated with Plato, which says that the spirit represents everything good and the flesh is entirely evil, 100%. And essentially, human beings are divine souls that are trapped in an evil human body. And so, in the Gnostic accounts, uh, Judas is a hero, because of course, what did Judas do? He allowed Jesus to escape his evil body, and so that the spirit uh, could escape. Okay, so Judas uh, really did the right thing in, in allowing Jesus to to get that nasty body off of him. So this leads to two different uh, extremes. If if that is the view, that the spirit 100% good, the flesh 100% bad. And so this can lead to something known as asceticism. And uh, in this Gnostic uh, direction, you would take great pains to just suppress everything that had anything of a uh, earthly flesh desire. And so... uh, some of you may have heard, this is, he's not a, a Gnostic uh, follower, but this influence in Christianity was quite, quite prevalent. Have you heard of St. Simeon Stylitus, who was someone who uh, probably in the fourth, fifth century spent 36 years on the top of a pole and his followers brought him food and he lived up there. This is a relic from the, uh, from the sixth century here. Here he is sitting up on a pole. Why is he doing that? Well, it's hard to uh, do many wrong things in the flesh if you're just up there on a pole all the time, right? That's really taken uh, to an extreme. But of course, this is not at all, I mean, what did Jesus say? He just, he wasn't, he was concerned about the inside, right? He wanted a heart transplant, a heart transformation that we don't even think evil thoughts, okay? But here the idea is, well, at least if I'm up on a pole, I won't be killing anyone. I won't be stealing anything. I'll just stay up there on a pole. The other extreme, of course, this would lead to is the thought, well, the deeds of the flesh are irre- irrelevant. It's 100% bad anyway. So as long as the spirit is aiming for that greater knowledge, then all is well. And of course, this would lead to great uh, immorality because whatever the flesh does, well, that's just what the flesh does. Don't worry about it. If my spirit has a desire for true knowledge, then uh, that's fine. Okay, either extreme, obviously, is is not correct. But here's the real um, rub as it relates to uh, deceptive influence here within Christianity. Gnosticism, Gnosticism accepted the idea of Christ, but not that he came to earth in the form of a man. In other words, that really wasn't God that we saw. He came in the appearance of a man, a hologram. Couldn't God do that? I think God would have the ability, you know, I don't really want to suffer I'm just going to kind of put a hologram down there to kind of walk around. People will think it's real. They'll think I'm really suffering. I'm not. Okay, couldn't God do that? Now, the Gnosticism would say God faked it, a hologram. He could not have possibly humiliated himself to the point of becoming a human. Okay, and so this is what John addresses so strongly in this book and it, just how the book opens. It's again, making the same argument against this Gnostic idea. I love the, how the Message Bible translates First John 1. From the very first day we were there, taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears, saw it with our own eyes, verified it with our own hands. We saw it, we heard it, we touched it, it was real. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in most sober prose that what we witnessed was incredibly this, the infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you, so you can experience it along with us, this experience of communion with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. This, in essence, is the message we heard from Christ and are passing on to you. And I love how John just says, this is the essence of the message. First of all, let me just tell you, we saw it. We heard it. We touched it. It was real. God became a human right before our very eyes. And here's the essence of the message that we have for you. God is light, pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in him. And again, I think this is the only point in human history we can really believe that to be true. The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, everything that Jesus said is the best evidence that we have that God is entirely good through and through. Okay, it's a vindication of God's character. God is light. God is good. God is love personified. That's the message. And I'd like to tie with this, the the words here in the, 1 John 5, this is such an amazing verse. John would say, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. And it's always challenging here to imagine, how would you finish this verse? Why did the Son of God come? What understanding did he come to give us? It's so that we know the true God. Remember Jesus said the night before he died, this is eternal life to know you. Okay, Jesus came so that we know the true God and not just, again, we know lots of facts about him. We can repeat, yes, he's love, he's this, he's that, but it's so that we really have the experience of knowing him as a friend, in a relationship, to know the truth about him, to really experience union with him. He came so that we know the true God. We live in union now with the true God, in union with his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and this is eternal life. This emphasis, who was it that wrote John 17 that said, this is eternal life to know you. It was only John. And here it's only John that would say, again, to associate eternal life, not with the length of time that it lasts, but to associate eternal life with the relationship with the true God. And if this is our definition of eternal life, okay, that begins now. It's not something we wait for down the road. We are to experience eternal life here and now. Okay, but here's what I kind of want to take off from this whole Gnosticism idea, this idea of knowledge. Again, this sounds good. And actually, uh, in a large extent, I agree with this. To place emphasis of life and salvation upon obtaining knowledge, which was deemed truth, and removing ignorance and error. I mean, we should be in hot pursuit of truth. We should obtain every bit of knowledge that we possibly can. So this is not a put down on knowledge. But the point I'd like to make is, it seems to me we emphasize truth, 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 greatly to the exclusion sometimes of love. Truth takes a front seat compared to love. And if we just read these books of John, uh, it's incredible the message that comes out. If I could just say, what about some specific points of knowledge? Okay, and this is not to say that um, some of these are not important. I think they are important, that we grapple with this, that we talk about these things. But I guess the point is, well, let's see, there's some things that are debated today. The age of the earth, creation versus evolution, Sabbath versus Sunday. Which atonement model do you hold? Absolute foreknowledge or the open view? What about uh, prophecy? Let's put it this way. Is it... um, Is it more important that we're settled into... I mean, let's just say God could come in human form right now, okay? You have questions about the age of the earth? I'll tell it to you straight. You want to know Sabbath versus Sunday? I'll give you the answer. Which atonement model does God hold? Uh, Well, wouldn't that be interesting? How would God explain all of these things in plain language to us today? Well, um, he could do that, of course. But which is more important? To hold a certain creed? that is correct or to be a loving person. The two are very much related. I'm not saying they're separate and distinct, but um, maybe just to bring up an example, it was about four or five years ago that uh, someone came on campus and did a a week of prayer for the students. And I remember a a student came down and asked if I could promote it, if I could get up and uh, maybe put in a good word um, for this uh, week of prayer, and sure. So I got up and said, yeah, sounds like it's a good thing. I encourage all of you to go. And then I found out that the person who gave the week of prayer um, publicly humiliated a staff member here at Loma Linda because this person held to the open view. And uh, this week of prayer speaker said, he should not even be at this institution. It's a great heresy and just slammed this uh, individual. Now I'm not stating a position for or against the open view. Okay, but again, in this example, truth, in the mind of this week of prayer speaker, was much more important than love. Was it a loving thing to humiliate a professor? Uh, Is that uh, what's more important? Truth or love? Prophecy. Have some of you seen this t-shirt? What part of, and there's a very detailed prophecy map, don't you understand Uh, How many individual points of prophecy do you need to have right to be in the club? Um, Truth is important, and I'm not saying prophecy isn't important, but what do we emphasize? What's more important, to love others as Jesus loved others or to have 10, 20, 28 right points of doctrine? Who would you rather live next door to? Gandhi or a person who maybe had 28 correct points of doctrine, but who had a lot to learn about loving others. Maybe some of you have heard the story of uh, Michael Servetus. Is that a name that's familiar at all, some of you? Uh, It's quite a guy. Here's the description. You can just pull this up on Wikipedia. Okay, lived from 1511 to 1553. A Spanish theologian, physician, cartographer, and humanist. He was the first European to describe the function of pulmonary circulation. His interests included many sciences, astronomy and meteorology, geography, jurisprudence, study of the Bible, mathematics, anatomy, and medicine. He is renowned in the history of several of these fields, particularly medicine and theology. Sounds like uh, quite a guy, right? Well, here's the problem. He participated in the Protestant Reformation, okay, nothing wrong there, but later developed a non-Trinitarian Christology. Okay, so he had a position, theological position position of knowledge or truth that was deemed by many, um, Calvin in particular, to be a great heresy. How do we deal with someone who has a point of knowledge that uh, we might not agree with? Here's his story. On June 17, he was convicted of heresy by the French Inquisition thanks to the 17 letters sent by Calvin, preacher in Geneva. And he was sentenced to be burned with his books, but he escaped. And so an effigy, and his books were burned in his absence. And here's what here's what's remarkable about his escape: meaning to flee to Italy, Servetus inexplicably stopped in at Geneva, where Calvin and his reformers had denounced him. On August 13, he attended a sermon by Calvin. I mean, went to hear him preach. At Geneva, he was immediately recognized and arrested after the service, and was again imprisoned. I mean, he went to go hear the guy preach. Isn't that incredible? And he's imprisoned and he was killed. Now, here were the words of uh, Calvin. Whoever shall maintain that wrong is done to heretics and blasphemers in punishing them makes himself an accomplice in their crime and guilty as they are. In other words, it was perfectly justified to silence his voice by putting him to death. There is no question here of man's authority. It is God who speaks and clear it is what law he will have kept in the church even to the end of the world. Wherefore does he demand of us a so extreme severity if not to show us that due honor is not paid him so long as we set not his service above every human consideration so that we spare not kin nor blood of any and forget all humanity when the matter is to combat for his glory. Now, just imagine if one of every Christian belief uh, had this uh, position. Basically, don't agree with me, uh, you're deserving of death. Uh, again, the, the distinction here between uh, knowledge. Here, this was felt to be a point of knowledge that was heresy, and so love goes out the window. I mean, is, this, is the example of Jesus Christ in any way to put to death individuals who don't uh, see things as we do. Is this a loving action? Who's the greater heretic in this story? Servetus or Calvin? Go to 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul would say, I may be able to speak the languages of human beings and even angels, but if I have no love, my speech is no more than a noisy gong or a clanging bell. I may have the gifts, gifts of inspired preaching. I may have all knowledge. Listen to that. I may have all knowledge and understand all secrets. I may have all the faith needed to move mountains, but if I have no love, I am nothing. I may have all knowledge, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I may give away everything I have and even give up my body to be burned. You certainly must be uh, the good as you can get, right? If you give your body to be burned, but no, if I have no love, this does me no good. Love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or conceited or proud. Love is not ill-mannered or selfish or irritable. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not happy with evil, but is happy with truth. Truth never gives up, and its faith, hope, and patience never fail. Love is eternal. There are inspired messages, but they are temporary. There are gifts of speaking in strange tongues, but they will cease. There is knowledge, but it will pass. For our gifts of knowledge and of inspired messages are only partial. But when what is perfect comes, then what is partial will disappear. When I was a child, my speech, feelings, and thinking were all those of a child. Now that I am an adult, I have no more use for childish ways. What we see now is like a dim image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. What I know now is only partial. Then it will be complete, as complete as God's knowledge of me. Meanwhile, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love." Truth and love very much go together. Again, I'm not trying to break them apart. It is the truth about God, the truth about his character that awakens love within us. Okay, but let's not put love 10 notches down from truth. Okay, they, they need to go um, together. And I want to go through now 1 John just read it through. It takes 15 minutes to read 1 John. The emphasis here that John has on being a changed person And reflecting God's character, it's just, it's the whole book. Just a few examples. After this incredible passage where John says, we saw it, we touched it, we heard it, that was God, God is light. Then he would say, but if we live in the light, just as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from every sin. And sometimes we associate this. Well, we think about the blood and to be purified And uh, Well, that's not really a change. We're not really changed. It is rather we are covered. When God looks at us, he doesn't really see us. He sees his son. And kind of uh, an example here, it would be kind of like a uh, carameled apple here, candied apple. And uh, to be covered by the blood is, well, we're rotten to the core. We're not changed as Christians. Uh, We're covered but, but I think really, I mean, what did Jesus say? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have eternal life. Um, It is to internalize the truth about God. It is to internalize the character of God. It is to be transformed, purified, cleansed from within. And just the rest of John would just make this point. This is how we can be sure that we are in union with God. If we say that we remain in union with God, we should live just as Jesus Christ did. That could be kind of intimidating bad news. Do any of us feel like we live just as Jesus Christ did? Well, that is the ideal, that's the promise. If we say that we are in the light yet hate others, we are in the darkness to this very hour. Notice, if we love others, we live in the light. And so there is nothing in us that will cause someone else to sin. Yes, my children, remain in union with him. And this ties in with our talk last time about the, the fires of hell. Remain in union with him so that when he appears, we may be full of courage and need not hide in shame from him on the day he comes. My dear friends, we are now God's children, but it is not yet clear what we shall become. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we see him as he really is. Okay, To know God is to be changed by God. When we see him as he is, it's an unavoidable consequence that we become changed into his image. That's why our picture of God is so important. Closer our picture of God is to the reality. And as we enter into a relationship with a God who's like that, we do become changed. Here is the clear difference between God's children and the devil's children. Those who do not do what is right or do not love others are not God's children. Isn't that just so clear. What's the difference? Well, God's children, they hold to a list of about um, 10, 15 things that are correct points of truths. Again, not to say the truths aren't important, but the clear difference is those who love others, those are God's children. The message you heard from the very beginning is this, we must love one another. We know that we have left death and come over into life. We know it because we love others. Those who do not love are still under the power of death. Those who hate others are murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life in them. This is how we know what love is. Christ gave his life for us, the ultimate demonstration of love. We too then ought to give our lives for others. If we are rich and see others in need, yet close our hearts against them, how can we claim that we love God? My children, our love should not be just words and talk. It must be true love which shows itself in actions. This is the evidence that we really are Christians, more important than uh, perhaps some doctrinal points that we may disagree on. It's so repetitious. We're only in the third chapter here. What he commands is that we believe or trust in his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as Christ commanded us. Remember, Jesus said... Right at the very end of John, I give you a new command, which is kind of funny. It's not a new command, but you've just never done it. I'm going to give you a new command, love one another. One rule, love one another. Those who obey God's commands live in union with God, and God lives in union with him. And because of the spirit that God has given us, we know that God lives in union with us. Dear friends, let us love one another. Our love comes from God. Whoever loves is a child of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. For God is love. First John 4. And we ourselves know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love. And those who live in love live in union with God. Notice how many times being a loving person is associated with being in union with God. And that's that's the point I really want to end on, because I think this is something we've, we've not really emphasized enough, to live in union with God, and God lives in union with them. Love is made perfect in us, in order that we may have courage on the judgment day, and we will have it, because our life in this world is the same as Christ's. There is no fear in love, perfect love drives out all fear, so then love has not been made perfect in anyone who is afraid, because fear has to do with punishment. We love because God first loved us. If we say we love God but hate others, we are liars. For we cannot love God whom we have not seen if we do not love others whom we have seen. The command that Christ has given us is this. Whoever loves God must love others also. The Message Bible is so direct on this last point here. The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. And the two really have to go together. And actually, when we do love God, when we truly love God, that is the only way possible for us to love others. So uh, just to to finish up on some points here, how well have we done as Christians in in human history? It's it's rather sad, actually, how poorly overall Uh, we have fulfilled the one command of Christ. Gandhi, of course, said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Does this stand in the way for people of coming to Christ when they they don't really see a reflection of God's character in us? Mark Twain, boy, I could have some uh, zinger Mark Twain quotes, but here's just one of them. Mark Twain said, there has only been one Christian and they killed him early. Okay, so he uh, again did not admired some things about Jesus Christ, but didn't see much that he admired in his followers. I know I've talked about this book at least a couple times, but it's a book called UnChristian, and it's a survey taken of people's attitudes towards uh, Christianity. And uh, very sad that the, just the name Evangelical Christian in a survey of, like, uh, favorability towards physicians, attorneys, all different things of employments, uh, the name Evangelical Christians was down near the bottom. Okay, somewhere just a notch or two above uh, prostitutes. So it's not all bad news, but it was pretty low. Um, But anyway, here's here's what is is really sad here. Just a quote from the book. Born-again Christians were just as likely to gamble, steal, View pornography, abuse alcohol and illegal or non-prescription drugs, take out revenge on someone and engage in physical or verbal abuse. Now, isn't there something wrong here? Shouldn't being a Christian, I mean, should our life be just the same as anyone else's? Does it really matter? Is there a transforming effect? And if not, why? So how do you become a loving person? Is I guess uh, maybe the obvious question at this point. Here are some options. Work harder at it. Go out and be loving. Can you do that? Now, not to say that there isn't a role in effort. There is. There is a role of the will that is very important. Uh, Ephesians five one says, be imitators of Christ. So it's okay to have that desire and to make specific changes. But can you grit your teeth and really love others? Well, let's take the Gnostic approach. Get more knowledge. Read more. Go to some seminars. Um, Will that make you a loving person? And knowledge again is important. It is the knowledge of God that is so much a stimulus for change. Uh, Is that the answer? How about just wait for God to do a miracle? Maybe you wake up one morning and you are love personified. Is that how it works? Uh, I had a patient who was addicted to heroin and he told me that he was at church and he just suddenly had no desire for heroin. Whoops. So, uh, but does that work very often? How do you become a loving person? Well, I would say, and and this is certainly what we've been talking about here all the way through in the Bible study, that at its core, our picture of God is critical. To know God is to become like him. By beholding, we become changed. What's our picture of God? Is our picture of God this? This is the clearest picture of God. God dying on, on a cross, forgiving his enemies. Uh, Is Continually, is our picture of who God is being reinforced? God is like that, God is like that, God is like that. Or is our picture of God of a vengeful, punishing, arbitrary, severe tyrant? How much of our picture of God perhaps includes elements that um, are not the reality? So this is important. I mean, this is the the, the critical piece. But I think, and what uh, Dorothy and I have been talking about a lot here recently and, and understanding is... This can also just be obtaining knowledge. We can all walk out of here and say, "Yep, God is just like Jesus." But does that knowledge, unless there is something else, does that knowledge uh, really change us? And I had this as uh, I have a Honda Pilot here, so I wanted to re- remember to talk about this. But on Mondays, I have a Bible study with School of Allied and Public Health, and I got out into my car and I'm driving back to. Uh, the VA and you know your mind just starts going through thoughts and uh, the thoughts that I had was um, um, kind of the the voice of God speaking to me my own thoughts however this works but it was kind of like well Brad that was another uh, another Bible study said a lot of things about me uh, now when was the last time you and I really talked and I had to think about it well it's actually been uh, quite a while hmm yeah I've been thinking a lot about preparing different thoughts and so on but how often do I really have communication? I mean, intimate kind of communication. Talk about it, but there just isn't time, it seems like. Uh, that's a problem. Just two verses on this, that I think really kind of explain how it is meant to be, how it is meant to work. It's not just knowledge that changes us. In Second Corinthians, Whenever though they turn to face God as Moses did, remember Moses knew God, spoke face to face with God as a man speaks with a friend. But whenever they turn to face God as Moses did, God removes the veil and there they are, face to face. They suddenly recognize that God is a living personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. Nothing between us and God. Our face is shining with the brightness of his face and so we are transformed. Notice that's how it's happening, face to face with God. We are transformed. <clears throat> our face is shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured much like our, the Messiah. Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. It is to experience something just like you have with a friend it is a face-to-face no veil in between it is an intimacy that has a transforming changing effect Ephesians 3 goes along with this yes may you come to know his love that's what we should be in pursuit and to know his love although it can never be fully known and notice in that process be completely filled with the very nature the very character of God And so uh, what is our experience with God? Here, maybe this is your um, living room or or bedroom or something. Now, if you're just um, praying to the wall or to the ceiling, how long can you do that before you begin to yawn and become tired and your thoughts go off on different directions? I mean, it takes a lot of willpower to talk to a wall for more than uh, two minutes. And you begin to think about... um, you know, biochemistry boards or something like that. I mean, uh, it takes an incredible amount of uh, willpower to talk to a wall. Okay, when we pray, are we talking to a wall? Is God there? Do we experience something that is more than just talking to a piece of furniture in our communication with God? How about, uh, you know, the Tibetan monks who according to their tradition, spinning a wheel will have much the same effect as actually saying the prayer there 's no real thought involved; we just spin the wheel. God is happy to hear the prayers going up by the spinning of the wheel. is God a thinking person that is actually engaged with us and uh, I notice um, uh, Dorothy said to me that uh, I often end my prayers with the words, uh, "In your name, we pray, amen, And uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I tried to you know uh, defensively defend myself well. Name means character and no, but the reality is, it's just verbiage that really means nothing. Do we discuss with God? Do we talk with God as if he's a real person? This quote about Luther, I just think uh, the way he talked to God, it's incredible. Luther did not pass a day without devoting three hours at least to prayer, think of that. And they were hours selected from those most favorable to study. Full of adoration, fear and hope, as when one speaks to a friend. And I think that is the key, not just to have knowledge about what God is like, but to actually experience that. Reading the Bible is one of the best ways. You read the Bible and you imagine that time as now I'm having conversation with God as I read this book. And you talk with God as you read the book. I mean, there are a thousand different ways you could experience God, um, but it has to be an experience. It has to be something real. And that is what is transforming, that process. Uh, Last point here. Uh, So many of the uh, things that have uh, inspired me have come from uh, an individual here, his name is Greg Boyd, and uh, he has some very good thoughts on this. actually just started a sermon series last week on the actual process of talking to God as a friend and being transformed in that process. And by tomorrow morning, uh, when I get the audio of this uh, Bible study up on uh, godscharacter.com, I'm gonna put a link because I would just encourage you, if you have an iPod or something, I'll give you the link. I think it's going to be an excellent sermon series to actually describe uh, this process. His sermon last week, uh, what I've listened to, is, is really good, and I'm, I'm stimulated myself to learn more uh, about this whole area. But I think it's critically important that our lives as Christians become like Christ. Again, we're not working our way to get to heaven. The thief on the cross trusted God. Wonderful. That's all God asks. But to be transformed, our lives should be different than others based upon the picture of God that we have. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it is incredible to think that uh, the all-powerful God of the universe, that uh, we imagine you as sitting on some distant throne, overseeing things with with all of your power, and sometimes forget that you are right here in a very personal, intimate sense that with each individual person here, that you want to have that relationship, something that's much closer. Help us to experience that with you. Help us to not talk to walls anymore, but to somehow see you as a real person, to experience what Moses did, this face-to-face communication with you as a friend. Amen.